Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. This week I chose The Cave of Night from the classic science fiction anthology series X-1. X-1 premiered on NBC April 24, 1955. The first 15 episodes of the series recycled scripts from Dimension X, a short-lived science fiction anthology from 1950. The rest of the series consisted of brand new adaptations of stories by contemporary science fiction authors, as well as original scripts from NBC staff writers Ernest Canoy and George Lefferts. During its three-year run, X-1 produced 126 episodes, including stories from Philip K. Dick, Frederick Pohl, Isaac Asimov, Theodore Sturgeon, and Ray Bradbury. The Cave of Night is based on a short story by writer, critic, and teacher James E. Gunn. Gunn's career in science fiction started in 1949 when he published the story Communications in the September issue of Startling Stories magazine and continues today with his recently published autobiography, Starbegotten, A Life Lived in Science Fiction. Gunn was educated at the University of Kansas, where he later worked and taught as a professor of English and journalism. Throughout his academic career, Gunn continued to focus on science fiction. In the early 50s, Gunn serialized his master's thesis in the pages of a pulp magazine and, in 1969, taught the very first university course on science fiction. His lifelong commitment to the genre led to his induction into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 2015. The Cave of Night was first published in the February 1955 issue of Galaxy Science Fiction magazine. This was more than a year before Sputnik kicked off the space race and more than a decade before Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon and the plight of Apollo 13 gripped the world. So with that historical context in mind, let's listen to The Cave of Night from X-1, first broadcast February 1st, 1956. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. In just a moment, X-1. But first, how does one man get himself into so many impossible situations? This is a question you'll probably ask yourself tomorrow night when you follow another hilarious adventure of Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. Yes, Gildy's eye for the ladies and his impulsive temperament managed to entangle him in a web of riotous circumstances. Join the romantic water commissioner, his neighbors, Judge Hooker, Mr. Peavy, and all the loyal Gildersleeve household as they romp through another episode of The Great Gildersleeve, tomorrow night. And now stay tuned for X-1. Countdown for blast off. X-5, 4... Three, two, X minus one, fire.
From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. Tonight's story, The Cave of Night, by James E. Gunn. Oh, you want a level, Charlie? Okay. Uh, though yet of Hamlet, our dear brothers, death the memory be... Anyway, how's it, okay? Okay. Uh, check recording, will I? I may go over a half hour. Make sure they've got another reel of tape ready, okay? All right, uh... Look, Bill, I've just put the segments of tape together for the next week's show. I'm going to record my narrations, and we'll listen to it together tomorrow. I know this is unusual, but you're the producer, and I don't want you out on a limb that may be sawed off behind us. This week's show is uh, liable to either win us every award from the Peabody to the Pulitzer Prize, or maybe put the network out of business. Okay, we, uh, we start with a standard opening. Behind the world, etc., you know, 40 seconds. <clears throat> This is Harry Anders, your editor. At 8 o'clock, after the sun has set and the sky is darkening, look up. There's a man up there where no man has ever been. He is lost in the cave of night. And the fuel tank's empty. Receiver broken. Transmitting and clear. Anyone picking this up, anyone. This is Rev McMillan calling. Notify Goddard Rock, New Mexico. No way to get back. There's a man up there where no man has ever been. He is lost in the cave of night. We all know that phrase now, the cave of night. It was written by a poet disguised in the cynical hide of a newspaper rewrite man. But it stuck. It caught the world and held it like a butterfly pinned to a board. It started with a ham, an amateur radio operator, in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, all right, Eddie. Roll the first tape in here. Now, it's marked. Am I too close? <clears throat> I was up in the attic. I usually have a talk with WG73. He's in Buenos Aires. We play chess. Well, uh, there was some kind of interference. And then all of a sudden, I heard this voice. Uh, I record most of my listening anyway, so I had the tape machine running. After I heard it, I called civil defense. Uh, that's what we're supposed to. If... Uh, look, Bill... I haven't done the final editing on these tapes, so don't worry if they're a little rough. Down out of the night, flung from the darkness, came these words, the first of so many that electrified the world. Notify Goddard Rock, New Mexico. There's no way to get back. No way to get back. I'm stuck up here. No way to get down. What does it take to catch the pity of the world? A man wedged underground in Kentucky. A little girl in the bottom of a well. Somebody alive, waiting for rescue, with the days of his life numbered. Somebody somewhere waiting for us to get him out. The story broke in this morning's papers. Orbiting 1,000 miles above our heads was a man, an officer of the United States Air Force in a fuelless spaceship. 
We're recording at the desk of Mike Bayless, senior night editor of the Continental Press National Wire. <clears throat> they always get a reaction like this. I remember the Floyd Collins story in the 20s. Fellow trapped in that cave in Kentucky, remember? Oh, sure. And the whole country hanging on to see if he could get out. Then there was that uh, little girl stuck in the well. Kathy Fiskus? Yeah. yeah. We pulled all those stories out and put them on the wire for background. But this hit bigger. We got the first lead from an Air Force handout in New Mexico. They just said an experimental rocket failed to return to base. But by that time, the cat was out of the bag. Ham operators picked up those messages from Boston to Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, Mr. Bayless, you first used the phrase, the cave of night, didn't mm -hmm. you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, you got to get a little purple on a thing like this. People eat it up. You can't spread it on too thick. Anyway, I was lost in a cave once when I was a kid in upstate New York. I waited around for a couple of hours in the dark until they came for me. It uh, kind of reminded me of that. It reminded the world of terrors at night, of struggling awake through nightmares. The fears of loneliness, darkness, falling, suffocation, thirst. It reminded me of Rev. McMillan. And perhaps I have an advantage over all the other reporters for newspapers and radio and television because I knew Rev. McMillan. I knew him in college and in the Air Force. I knew that he was testing rocket-powered craft at Goddard, but I didn't know they were so close to space. No one knew, till those messages of desperation crackled down through the atmosphere. I remembered Rev when I saw those headlines that morning. Straight black hair, Clark Gable ears, a reckless grin. He ate well, reveled in expert jazz and Mozart opera, and he talked incessantly. His southern speech was no drawl, there was too much to say. And now he was alone. And soon, all that might be extinguished. The men from the radio newsrooms rushed to Goddard rocket base armed with miniature tape recorders. I was sending a story on Gentlemen, I'm Colonel Arthur J. Hannigan, information officer for Goddard rocket base. And I'm authorized to issue the following statement. First Lieutenant Reverty L. McMillan, United States Air Force pilot... Experimental Rocket Division took off from Goddard Base at 22.34 Rocky Mountain Time. As craft, the XR-37 Mark II, a hydrazine nitric three-stage rocket. I'm sorry I can't describe it, boys, classified. Well, in order to maintain orbit, the motors were pulsed for one second every 15 seconds elapsed time. After three minutes, the exhaust was seen by ground spectroscope observation to flare for half a minute. As fuel supply is exhausted, the craft has reached sustaining orbital speed. Well, what does that mean, Colonel? He's out of gas. He can't get down. The first mobilization was of the scientific brains massed at Goddard. Few of them knew Rev. Brains at a research project are usually carefully sorted out and salted away from the distractions of the outside world. They designed, they invented, they calibrated and theorized. But they didn't know the short, stocky man with a lopsided grin who rode the fruit of their labor up and up and now circled the world of his birth with time ticking out. I covered the hearings in Washington for the network newsroom. I flew down from New York and the stewardess came out every few minutes to tell the passengers the latest news. 
She called him Rev, although she never knew him. And once I thought I saw a tear. The hearing was before the subcommittee of the Senate Committee on Military Affairs. Presiding, Senator Alan J. Hagister of Kentucky. <laughs> All right, General Finch. You've made the technical situation fairly comprehensive, even to an old cane break, redneck hillbilly like myself. <laughs> I have tried to make the gravity of the situation apparent, sir. It appears to me, General, that the sacred life of a human being created in the image of his maker is in danger. There's no light thing to be thrown away like some guinea pig. If that ship wasn't safe, if that poor man up there in the cave of night is to die, Somebody is responsible. Isn't that right, General? Sir, a manned rocket was sent up because of one simple fact. It takes a computer of tremendous versatility and capacity to operate a Harrison-Munch reactor engine. A computer of infinite complexity. And I ask you, General, I put the question to you. Why was such a computer not designed? It has been designed, sir. It was designed a half a million years ago. There is only one mechanism competent to handle those controls, sir. That is the human brain. <clears throat> All right. I turn now to my second question, General, and I ask it not only for myself and my colleagues on this committee, but for 170 million Americans listening on the radio, watching on television. With that man up there living out his last days, why was it not possible to send a ship up after him? Why was there no second ship built? For one reason, Senator, money. The appropriation for rocket research fell short by 12% of the amount needed even to build one vessel. Oh, frankly, gentlemen, the deficiency was made up by cutting corners and diverting funds from other projects. That is not the point, General. There's a man up there who's going to die. With the limited funds you gave us, we've done what we set out to do. We've demonstrated that space flight is possible, that a space platform is feasible. If there is any inefficiency, if there is any blame for what has happened, it lies at the door of those who lack the confidence and the courage and ability of their countrymen to fight free of Earth to their greatest glory. Senator... How did you vote on that? <laughs> this is Harry Anders in the gallery of the Washington National Cathedral. This is a special prayer service called by the dean of the cathedral for the safety of Lieutenant McMillan and for the success of the recently announced rescue plan. The church is filled. There's a sprinkling of high Navy, Army, and Air Force uniforms. I see General Finch in the second row, next to the Secretary of the Air Force and the newly appointed Undersecretary of Defense, Mr. Winokur. Prominently displayed in the center aisle, below the ornate railing separating the pews from the altar, is the small model of Macmillan's ship. One by one now, the congregation is filing past, dropping checks, bills. I saw one child drop in 12 pennies, one by one. All contributions are to be used to defray the cost of the rescue effort. The congregation is now kneeling to pray. A moment of silent prayer will follow for the safety and rescue of Lieutenant McMillan. One billion dollars was raised in one week from voluntary contributions. 
Another billion and a half was appropriated unanimously by Congress. The race began. Would the rescue party reach the ship in time? Of course, we didn't know then. And daily we listened to the voice of the man we hoped to buy back from death. Uh, now, look, Bill. On these Macmillan broadcast tapes, uh, don't let some, some ignorant engineering vice president holler because it's not broadcast quality. Believe me, I knew Macmillan. There's more of that wild Texan in these tapes than in any, any hi-fi super-frequency response studio recordings. Just listen. You, you'll see what I mean. I've been staring out the portholes. I never tire of it. Through the window at the right, I see a black velvet curtain with a strong light behind it. There are pinpoint holes in the curtain, and the light shines through, not winking the way stars do, but steady. There's no air up here. That's the reason. My oxygen is holding out better than I expected. By my figures, it should last 27 days more. I shouldn't use so much of it talking all the time, but it's hard to stop. Talking, I feel as if I was still in touch with the Earth. Still one of you. Even though I am way up here. Too bad the receiver is broken, but if it had to be one or the other, I'm glad it was the transmitter that came through all right. There's only one of me. There are billions of you to talk to. You can't see me now. You'll have to wait hours for the dawn. I'll have mine in a few minutes. That's the way he talked. And as we listened to the lonely voice from the night, the engineers, the scientists, the construction men worked round the clock. General Finch presented the problem in the pool interview. I asked the questions for the combined networks that afternoon. Most of you heard the complete broadcast live as he briefed the world with the clipped laconic delivery of a soldier. There are two basic problems. We've recovered the first and second stages of the rocket. We've only to construct the third stage. The second problem is more difficult. The pilot. Lieutenant McMillan was the only man physically and psychologically qualified. We discovered that in our first program. His training and orientation took 18 months. We have now to duplicate this in 27 days. You think it's possible, General? I don't know. Uh, that's all, Mr. Anders. Uh, Stevenson, get me some coffee, will you? Black and some kind of sandwich, no butter, no mayonnaise. And then the voice from the cave asked a question and expected no answer. Do you hear me down there? Sometimes I wonder. I wish there was some way I could be sure you were hearing me. Just that one thing might keep me from going crazy. I was there the night we answered that question. I was there in a helicopter over Kansas City. This is Harry Anders speaking to you from a helicopter over Kansas City. There are 15 seconds till midnight. The plan was developed by General Finch. At precisely midnight, every light in the city will be out and then flashed on in two-second intervals. This will be the exact moment that McMillan's ship is calculated to pass overhead. It's, it's almost time now. Five, four, three, two, one. There they go. Off. On. Off. On. Off. On. I see it. I see it. Kansas City winking at me. Oh, yes, I can see it. 
Thanks. Thanks. You're listening. I know that now. I'm not alone. I'll never forget. I'm waiting for you. We're recording in the press gallery of the Goddard Rocket Base main construction hangar. The vast third stage component stands before us, men swarming up and down the gantry cranes. The Mark III is being built to carry five men instead of one. The pilot selection has been kept a top secret to avoid unnecessary strain on the men selected. The latest progress report gives a possible margin of six hours between the launching of the rescue ship and the estimated exhaustion supply of oxygen to Lieutenant McMillan. Uh, the shift is changing now. The expert construction workers recruited from across the country by the combined efforts of the Air Force Personnel Service, the Atomic Energy Commission, and the International United Electrical Workers and United Auto Workers of the AFL-CIO. The margin is six hours. Six hours between life and death for Lieutenant Reverdy L. McMillan. An hour ago, I saw the sun rise over Russia. Looks like any other land from here. The green where it should be green. Farther north, a, a sort of mud color. And then white where the snow is still deep. Up here, you wonder why we're so different when the land is the same. You think we're all the same children of the same mother planet. Who says we're different? Uh, can you hear me in the back? Hey, you stand a little close. Well, uh, how about this? That's better. That's better. All right, gentlemen, I have exactly five minutes for the press conference, therefore I'm not going to answer any questions. Progress report is as follows. As a safety factor, we're constructing two complete three-stage rockets and six additional third-stage components. The telemetered reports from McMillan's ship have added important additional information, and the first of the rescue vessels should be ready to be launched at the estimated time, weather permitting. Now, don't ask a question. Within certain limitations of air turbulence, the rocket will be ready to lift in time to save Lieutenant McMillan. 21 days. The air is bad tonight. I can't seem to get a full breath. It seems to stick in the lungs. Doesn't matter, though. But I wish you could see what I've seen. The vast spreading universe around Earth like a bride in a soft veil. You'd know then that we belong out here. Come out, mankind. Come out and see what I have seen. This is Harry Anders at Goddard Rocket Base. The Harrison Munch reactor engine for the first third stage rescue is being tested here at Goddard. You can hear the roaring of the gases in the test chamber behind me. The work has been stepped up as a new calculation based on the increased temperature reading from McMillan's ship indicates that the exhaustion time will be some six hours earlier than originally estimated. The margin of rescue will be in minutes. Air very bad. Better hurry. Can't last much longer. Silly, of course you'll hurry. But I don't want anyone feeling sorry for me. I've seen the stars clearly. But more than this, I've seen the earth. There where I have lived and loved. 
I have known it better than any man. And loved it better. And known its children better. Goodbye. I have a better tomb than the greatest conqueror Earth ever bore. Do not disturb. Count down for blast off. Five, four, three, two, one. Anders, tape 323. We're in the press operation room of Goddard Field. The rescue rocket has been aloft 53 minutes plus. Its calculated time of arrival is 54 minutes. You will hear the voice of General Beauregard Finch on a direct pickup from the rescue vessel, which has been named unofficially the Lifesaver. Silent crowds have collected at the outer perimeter of the rocket base, as if by their presence they might help it. Come, quiet, quiet. The next voice you hear will be General Finch, aloft in the rescue ship. The voice quality may not be good. He's speaking over a throat mic in his pressure suit. Mark three to base. This is Finch. We'll secure that cable. We have just secured to the airlock of Macmillan's ship. I'm now entering the lock. The inner door is closed. I have closed the outer door. The inner door is cycling. Now it is open. Bring in those oxy bottles, please. The bulkheads of the control room is open. Is he all right? Come on, William. What's happening? Lieutenant McMillan is dead. He died heroically, waiting till all hope was gone. Until every oxygen gauge stood at zero. And then, well, the airlock was open when we arrived. In accordance with his own wish, his body will be left here in its eternal orbit. I'm going to leave now. My feet will be the last to touch this deck. Lieutenant McMillan is in his control chair, staring out towards the stars. I'll leave the airlock doors open behind me. Let the airless, frigid arms of space protect and preserve for all eternity. This man they would not let go. Well, that's the show, Bill. Bill, you remember at the conference we we hadn't made up our mind whether to pick anything up from the celebration last night after the news of the Mars landing? I said it was the right end for Rev. McMillan's story. You said it was old stuff. Every kid knew the sequence. The ships built to rescue Rev used to set up the satellite base from the base to the moon and now to Mars. Well, I went out with a mini-tape last night, and I've got the end of the story. Here it is. This is Harry Anders in Times Square. The neon rocket ship at the top of the Times building has just flashed into brilliant light. The signal that the landing signal has been received from the rocket Rev. McMillan III. 
Man has landed on Mars. And a holiday crowd here in Times Square is celebrating like a thousand New Year's rolled into one. I'm being, I'm being tossed and pushed and clapped on the back all at once. Uh, let's see what the man on the street thinks about man on Mars. Uh, you, uh, you, sir, uh, I'm broadcasting. No, no. No, no. How do you feel about it, sir? How do you feel tonight about man's conquest of space, of the planet? Leave me alone. I'm in a hurry. Well, just a few words of... Look, me. you get your hands off me. Let go of me. I'm not in... Well, wait a minute, sir. Wait, wait a... Wait, Rev! Rev, come back here! Rev! You think I could listen to that voice over and over in a tape editing room and not know every vowel, every consonant? I'm telling you, Bill, I saw him. Rev McMillan. The black hair was gray and those Clark Abel ears were pinned back, but that's a simple operation. I played that piece of tape over and over. It was Rev. I know it. He isn't up there. He's alive. We've got it, Bill. We've got it on our show. We'll break it. Rev McMillan is alive. I haven't written it yet, but we finish it off with this, with a question. Why did they announce he was dead? I'm in the tape editing room now. I've got the reel ready to record the answer. Excuse me, Mr. Andrews. I'm... Uh, hey, 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 just a minute. I'm recording. You better see the page outside uh, Mr. of the... Mr. Andrews, de- I'd like to talk to you for a moment, if I may. I have a letter of authorization. Oh, uh, no, just a minute. I'll, I'll be through in a minute. Look, Bill, I've got the answer now. Last night, they landed on Mars. But that first ship, the one that circles up there now, there isn't anybody on it. There never was, except a 30 days recording and a transmitter. That's all. He was never up there. They didn't have the money for a manned rocket. They wanted a crash program all out, so they sent a decoy up. (laughs) And we all broke our hearts to rescue the man who wasn't there. Oh, he must be laughing, General Finch and the rest of them, the ones that knew. Yeah, I guess they had a problem. What to do with Rev? (laughs) I wonder if he slipped away from whatever guards they have around him to see the celebration. He looked a little, uh, a little sad. I think sometimes he, he must wish he was really up there in the cave of night, seated in the icy control room, 1,075 miles above the earth, staring out at the stars. Mr. Anders, I must insist What? That... Uh, oh, uh... Oh, Bill. Looks as if I won't have to worry about editing this tape. My friends are from Washington. I'd like to call your attention to the last paragraph. What? Oh, no, 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 no. It's very simple. You won't have to burn it. It's easy to destroy recording tape. I throw this switch. When the tape goes through, the erasing head, it's... It's gone forever. Oh, too bad. Would have made one fine show. Okay. So long, Rev. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features an exciting serial, Slave Ship, by Frederick Pohl. That was The Cave of Night, from X-1, here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Aaron. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And that was Joshua's pick this week. I'm going to start by saying that if you are a new listener, uh, then I will fill you in. If you are an avid listener and have listened to a lot or all of our episodes of this podcast, you know this, that Joshua and I have gone back and forth and had a lot of discussion about X-1. I am not a fan. I have not enjoyed most of what I've heard of X-1. And so I'm sure with bated ears, I don't know if that's a word, but uh, Joshua is waiting to hear if 
Maybe, finally, do you like this one? I think you do. Yeah, I'm going to start it out, man. This was really good. <laughs> I really, finally, you found an X minus one that I've I like. I've had this one in my back pocket forever. It's an outlier. I wasn't going to start with this one because now you're never going to like any other X minus <laughs> one I bring. My hope was I wouldn't have to use this one to bring you on board. But I finally broke down and went, no, this is going to be Eric's X minus one. Yeah. So today is Sunday... May 19th, 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 2019. And then once we're done with the recording, I'm going to go home and watch the last episode of Game of Thrones. I don't know if either of you guys have been watching Game of Thrones. Are you kidding? No. No, no. of course not. <laughs> so the most recent episode, there's been a lot of think pieces published, and I'm going somewhere with this. But one of those, published in the Scientific American, Ooh. was talking about why the most recent seasons seemed different. And their theory was, or rather their thesis was that Game of Thrones, the TV series, started as a sociological-based story rather than psychological. And I'm still coming around. Oh, I'm waiting for it. No, this is uh, good. So it's a story where the characters are shaped by the institutions and the things around them, and they might die uh, more than once. Like, main characters. Like, that's the guy we thought was going to be the main character of the show, and he just died. Uh, whole plot strands. Like, those guys all died, and they're gone. And it has effects on other characters, but you are not linked to one character and that character's sort of journey in as much as the journey is more important than the background. When you hear things of like, the love story gets set against the background of the World War II. In Game of Thrones, the background is very much in the foreground. Mm -hmm. So the Scientific American article was arguing that most recent episodes have become psychologically based. You don't see main characters die anymore. It's very much central to identities of these characters and not large institutions. I'm saying that because this was on my mind recently, and this episode seemed like this is a sociologically based episode. It's a story about institutions and the way they operate, and the actual characters you don't necessarily latch on to. And I'll, I'll say, like, I was totally fooled. Like, I was... <laughs> half bored listening to this of like I don't care about this guy that they're all mourning up in space I don't know who this guy is I'm kind of uh, off in my own little world thinking about other little bits of business and then the end came and I was what? <laughs> <laughs> but you hate astronauts yeah that's something <laughs> I need to know about you I'm like you're in space <laughs> oh earth isn't good enough for you huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh you died up there you think? there's in no space <laughs> <laughs> Your no. own fault, stupid. <laughs> Look at me, I have a lot of degrees. <laughs> I'm physically superior to most people. <laughs> that was really fascinating. I, I would just like you to talk more about all of that, because uh, I had some thoughts about this, but they're going to pale in comparison to that <laughs> well, wonderful little essay And this is did. not just a little shoehorn of like, I've been thinking about Game of Thrones for like <laughs> a month. <laughs> but it was just startling to me to have that be chewing on that idea and have this episode mm -hmm. embody it so uh, starkly. So if you're new to the podcast, my quibble with X minus one has always been that it will border on the goofy for me or have huge plot holes or, as we argue a lot about, the music just is random and not thought about. And there's just things that bother me. And this episode tied everything together for me. It has everything that I love, including... And here we go, and I know you know that I'm going to say this. If you don't know I'm going to say this, I'm going to be shocked. This is how War of the Worlds should have been for the entire <laughs> episode. This is so close to the formula of 
War of the Worlds, you know, slightly different context. I get it. But well, it's not a live event, which I think is what makes War of the Worlds so powerful and successful. This is a after the fact documentary. Yes. But you're right. It has a lot of the strengths of War of the Worlds, that authenticity of recordings that were made live and that you're kind of listening mm-hmm. in and you can have those nice contrasts between soundscapes as you cut from scene to scene that this utilizes yeah. a lot. It's just different points of view on the same story. Yes, War of the Worlds was live and this is a documentary, but it's still that same concept. And as we've talked about with War of the Worlds, I, I'm not a fan of part two of War of the Worlds and Orson Welles' giant monologue, but that beginning is the best piece of old-time radio ever. This was fascinating to me. I will argue with him that I wasn't bored. I was really interested in the story all the way through with the same what at the end. You know, I was like, oh. But to Tim's point, to bridge both your points, I don't think it's supposed to be a story where you feel too much for Macmillan, the astronaut. Or his wife. (laughs) (laughs) He loves her very much. Uh, She knows. You thought we were not going to say Macmillan and wife during this podcast? You guys were doing two different jokes in your in your own head, and I'm sure the audience has had a third joke. Continue. Uh, so you are open to feel for Macmillan the way you're saying you were invested in the story of what's going to happen to this guy, but also it does have that sociological, how, how does the world react? How does the government react Mm -hmm. to this. It's not a superhuman story. And even the descriptions and the language is very sensational. The Mm -hmm. narration from Harry, and they even comment on it uh, with the actual title, The Cave of Night, which is one of my favorite scenes when they go talk to the night editor who's just like, yeah, you got to get a little purple with these things. (laughs) And then I think it's, it's so fun because then the actual show proceeds to get a little purple. Yeah, It it acknowledges that. And there's lots of hyperbolic overblown speeches, um, but they then suck you in and you realize, oh, that newspaper guy was right. (laughs) I'm totally getting sucked in by the purple prose. And listening to it a second time, the point of view of the ultimate outer shell editorial person who's putting this together, you can see that it's not just, I'm doing a report. It's that he's uncovered something that Mm -hmm. he's building his case for this true thing that when listening to him the first time, I had no idea he was building a case. But when you listen to it a second time, all those pieces are there. It's yeah. really <laughs> clever, but none of them are red flags. You know, astronauts can send messages but not receive them. The general speech to Congress about funding seems, again, like it's making more of a moral point than a clue to the story. The identity of the team of astronauts being sent to rescue him is top secret because, <laughs> you know, there were no astronauts. And just there's just tons of those littered throughout it, but none of them pop out. Yeah. So... I had never heard the phrase, you got to go a little purple. I've never heard that before. <laughs> purple prose. Yeah, I've never heard it. So I It was, bugs you a lot. You talk about purple prose in certain I just um, don't stories where you're like, it's so flowery and yeah. too much, and people don't talk like that. Yeah. Um, that's so we'll be hearing that prose. phrase a lot from now on. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, we just <laughs> weaponized <laughs> Eric. So sometimes it snows in April. That's purple prose. See, it's a Prince joke, and you guys have no idea what I'm doing. All right, so anyway. (laughs) We acknowledge it. (laughs) Any Prince lyric would be purple prose. All right, so I learned that. Here's the the thing. I love the writing and the performance of that casual conversation between engineer and the producer, director, narrator of the documentary. But you never hear the producer, which is great. No, because you don't. Hey, Bill. 
But yeah, but yeah. that's how it is. I you know, know he's in another room. Awesome. I could have listened to him just put together a documentary. It was written in such a way that it felt like being in the room with him. So I thought that was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Second, what's going to happen to this astronaut? We're learning the story. Does he get saved? Does he not get saved? I thought that was fascinating. Three, how they tell the story by going to different reporters and recordings and things of that nature. I thought that was a great way to tell a story. And the contrasts are so nice, the way they select which scene you move to. You know, you've got the hustle and bustle of a newsroom with, you know, typewriters going, and then you go to a big press conference, and then you go to the hushed whisper when we're in the prayer service. Mm -hmm. You just keep bouncing back and forth. Which is very War of the Worlds. And again, I thought almost all the way through, the story was, we're going to tell you the story of this astronaut and how he got saved. Yeah. Or not saved, and how he died. And this is just a really interesting way to tell this through the eyes of a documentarian putting it together. The idea that the thing was a hoax was a wonderful, and I've said this so many times, oh, this this stupid story needs a twist. <laughs> it needs something to happen. And something happened that I thought was brilliant. And as Tim said, then that boils down to a sociological and all and sorts of other That's important. That twist has to make sense. Mm-hmm. It has to feel like, yeah, I could see that happening. Here's it's my- that trick of... Uh, I thought I was listening to a story about whether this astronaut gets saved or not, and that's not the story I've been listening to. And I, I've fully been engaged with this story. I just didn't know what it was about until right. I did. This also features it's just a small dumb detail, but it, it made me laugh at both times. It has the vaguest yet specific lunch order ever. It's, it's when that, in that press conference when like I think it's the general or somebody's giving some talk, and he you catch the end where he's ordering lunch from somebody and he goes some kind of sandwich no butter no mayonnaise <laughs> what some kind of sandwich just might have butter and mayonnaise on it <laughs> <Right>. most <laughs> I, I have one uh, caveat one complaint the last 30 seconds to a minute somewhere in there is what i was really unhappy with I did not like all of that and how brilliant it was to end up with, just hold on a minute. I got to finish this story. No, sir, we're with the government. I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. I'm on board. Yeah, we're going to have to shut you down. Yep, I thought so. Okay, that's too bad. It's erased. Like, it just, (laughs) I wanted the last 30 seconds to be, no, 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 you can't do this. Sorry, sir, we're going to have to do that. You know, I wanted that. But he was just like, yes. That's the trick of it, right? Because we're still listening to the recording. Oh, I didn't think about that. Like, he, you just press the button and you hear, blah, 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 and it's still recording. He didn't destroy it. Uh, is that what I missed? <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> it's a little how, stretch, but it's not. You can interpret it that way. I thought about that. I don't know what the authorial voice is. If it's just like, well, yeah, obviously we're hearing it because it's a radio show. And within the universe, are we supposed to believe then that it is actually gone? So the evidence g- for that, for Tim's reading, though, is how casual he is about it. That's what I didn't right. like. He says, I don't want to burn it. It's just easy enough to erase it. I never caught that. See, that's why I was mad at it. He was too casual about this not... Okay, so what it, this recording it's is... It's still a, a valid but, criticism, but, as in, it's, it's not very I'm clear. working a little for that. The recording, though, that we're listening to as listeners is the entire recording session that day. That's the premise, not a story being told. I'm, I'm having a hard time what's in my head. Maybe. <laughs> there are lots of ways to read this because you're yeah. in the recording no, no, studio no, no, no. with him. No, there isn't. It's now, <laughs> it is now that way, so I love the whole story. 
he was recording because he was just about to do the last bit. So it- that just saved this whole thing for me. <laughs> well, there's also a reading that I like about this journalist who knows the forces lined up against him. Right? He's had this realization. They fake the entire thing. I'm onto something huge. He says at the top, we're either going to win every award there is or the network will get shut down. So he goes in knowing that he's rolling the dice on this. And to me, the little of the quality he has at the end is, I knew this was a long shot. Mm. Well, they portrayed him as, he was very excited about the accolade and money to come, not the journalistic integrity of discovering the truth. Well, he also says it's just going to be a great story. Note that he's also pretty amused by it. He doesn't say his opinion of it. Like when he says, they did all this. There's, there's a quality yeah. where he's like, it's kind of brilliant, isn't it? But right. I still, it's still a great story and I'm going to tell everybody. Right. And he feels a little bad for Rev, which I think is a kind of interesting idea that they paint this guy who is known throughout the planet for being this first man in space who died and he never got to go to space and he can never show his face again. He might as well have died in space. There's something kind of melancholy about that. And speaking of dying in space, I I have nothing to base this on, but the trope of being trapped in space, we've seen a lot of movies and a lot of things about that. And I started to think, what year was this? 50-something? Six. 56. 56. Written in 55. This very well could have been the first time that we heard a man trapped in space kind of story. Well, yeah. And the reason I put those other big real-life events in the opening is because this feels a lot like Apollo 13, if you've read Mm -hmm. anything about it. I mean, the Mm -hmm. whole world listened and watched Mm -hmm. and everybody was trying to figure out how to get them down. And this was a decade before that. It seems really prophetic to real life. It also foreshadows this sort of distrust of the government. I think that ending might feel more authentic to us today because this is like 55 like but i start associate like when we get into vietnam and things when pop culture starts really however aren't we in mccarthyism at this point That's yes it. i'm not sure the exact 50s dates but I, there is some distrust i think at this point but you don't no, see no. it pop up a lot in pop culture type of entertainment like no, this. Not at all. Until we're still post science fiction is still, still existing post-war. on the fringe. Yeah. But it's know? interesting that it's it's not like the government is pulling the wool over the eyes of the people of it's an agency that was with limited limited resources, just roll the dice of like we can do better and if we just need to get tell a big enough lie. That's still a hoax perpetrated by your government to get more money from people <laughs> based on an untruth. It's a slippery slope. It's not something it's to a murder scrappy people. Little department yeah. <laughs> and the point of the story at the end is they pulled it off. They got more out of it. We are now on Mars. Everyone's happy. But again, I think that goes back to your original sociology point. It's more about an observation about how people react to things and how governments yeah. work, not where you're supposed to feel morally one way or the yeah. other. Like, like this Game of Thrones yeah. used to be. <laughs> it also foreshadows stuff like the moon landing was fake. Right? Mm-hmm. It has yeah. a, it has a exactly. hoax. It seems is... so specific. When I listened to it, I went, oh, yeah, he, he must be riffing on a, Apollo 13 and or fake no. moon landing. And no. then I went, no, wait, but it's 1955. But here's what's interesting. What they are riffing on, I guess, or you know, basing the, the idea of the story on is something that's age old, which is brought up in the writing and in this show, which I find fascinating, that people are absolutely... 100% on board with people being trapped and rescues. Mm-hmm. So uh, they talk about, you know, the girl trapped in the well. And, you know, we've just had it with the, the boys in, in the cave in Thailand. And yeah. and how we all kind of 
rally in the sense of hope, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we become glued to it. Yeah, and he's, so then, it's he's not projecting an, that into this future outer space. And right. It's just amazing how dead and on it <laughs> yeah. is. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> science fiction projects a lot of those things, mm. and they're bizarre and never turn out to be true. But it's also a comment on the girl trapped in the well gets so much more response out of people and so much more demand for action than anonymous kids starving all over the world. Yeah. yeah. And so it's also interesting to hear that in a 1956 broadcast and realize, oh, we're the same. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot in this podcast, listening to old time radio, that how many times we're struck by 50, 60, 70 years later, sociologically, we're the same humans. Well, you know, people are motivated by a psychological story of like that poor man up there mm-hmm. trapped and, oh, we sympathize with him, we feel for him, we've got to do something, mm-hmm. as opposed to sociologically of space is underfunded, it's a real opportunity for us. I love the phrase, by the way, I don't know if this has been said before, but the cave of night is a cool way to put it, and I thought that was fabulous. Yeah, I don't I'd think never... it's from anything. I think he was just trying to create this authenticity of a newspaper a reportman co- who coins a term and everyone picks up with it. What this a great way yeah. to describe. It's a meme. Yeah. <laughs> it's a 1950 yeah, meme, Cave of Night. But that's it, right? You're trapped in a cave, mm-hmm. in essence, up there. In sp- I, just, I found that fascinating was, also. <laughs> it was devious, and I loved it. The idea was they recorded 30 days of his mm-hmm. voice, put it up there, so they had to know, like, ham radio receivers are going to start hearing this at this point. We're going to convince Kansas City to turn all its lights on and off <laughs> by this point. Right. Of, like, it's plausible, but that's devious and elaborate. It really is. And I think the story does a good job helping us accept that by including things like the discussion with the newspaper reporter who states this fact, not just to Harry, the guy doing the editor, but to the listeners going, this is how people are going to respond. Yeah, crisis. And so you get that idea as a listener that it's a no-brainer. Of course the government could predict that we can make Kansas City do this. What, is Kansas City going to go, no? (laughs) If they're Tim, they're going to go, right, F you astronaut. (laughs) Oh, I know Kansas City. They would have said no. There goes all our listeners. They hate astronauts. (laughs) They're known for barbecue and hating astronauts. (laughs) Uh, The uh, other thing about this that I need a little help with is the idea that his capsule up there floating around allowed them to land on Mars somehow. Did anybody figure that piece out? The logic, as I understand it, is they did not have enough money to do anything useful. So they created a ship that was just meant to go up, broadcast this recording, and die in the hopes that that recording would then get the money so they could do something actually useful. And they built a second rocket, and they say the, the later rockets were built on the um, rocket that yeah, they built the to rescue, rescue them. And uh, you, you presume then that um, the success of that second rocket got them more funding, and then you could have all sorts that of wasn't, people saying, you don't right. want another astronaut to die, do you? It's important that he dies. None of that was specifically stated. They called it a crash mission, which I think might have meant... They thought that conveyed the idea better than it did, but... Thank you for letting me off the hook with the idea that it wasn't that specific and you can get lost in what the point of them doing this cover-up was. I figured that as much, but it really wasn't stated very clearly. Well, because they said it like that's a regular thing. Like a crash mission. We just do that sometimes. (laughs) Spend a lot of money to destroy something. I mean, this goes on the idea that if you just get enough money, you can suddenly make everything work. So mm-hmm. what had to happen is with the money, they, they obviously had all successful space programs after that. 
I would love to hear part two of this and find out what that guy's life was hiding that they pretended to kill and yeah mcmillan yeah, yeah. and he actually got discovered and he's just sitting doing crossword puzzles <laughs> and listening to radio shows <laughs> when he met his wife when they got the tv show so basically like the last season of McMillan game of thrones <laughs> <laughs> boring personal stuff that we don't care about oh it's not boring <laughs> I, I don't know i read the books it big may- surprise <laughs> <laughs> well then you'll find out in 25 years when the next two books come out. That's fine. We'll still be doing this, I'm sure. <laughs> also, this episode made me realize at the very top, I've actually never listened to an episode of The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> <laughs> I know all about it. I know what it is, but I've never taken the time to listen to it. And that's because I avoid comedy and old-time radio because comedy is a really hard time standing the test of time. Mm-hmm. I still... And I'm going to be hard-pressed to change my mind. Deny that's a real thing. <laughs> Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. No. <laughs> nope. Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. That's astronaut garbage. <laughs> it's, it's a fake recording that they shot up into space. I get the idea that, I know we're way off topic now, but the entire premise of the Great Gildersleeve is that's a funny name. <laughs> like that's, that's worth three seasons <laughs> Throckmorton Alright, should we vote? Yeah, sure. we should vote Absolutely I'm I'm going to start I absolutely adore and love the opening to X-1 It is one of the greatest openings in old-time radio ever And it has bothered me for years that what followed wasn't as Was great wasn't, Shut up, Eric Wasn't aimed at me okay. uh, Wasn't my favorite stuff Because that is the Honestly, that's the most fantastic, one of the best openings to old-time radio ever. That's beautiful. Oh, and this one works in Countdown to Blast. Right. It does. <laughs> it works in better. But this, finally, I've had close calls with X-1. I've had horrendous uh, I've had horrendous first dates. With, I have had some so roller we'll coaster. Th- <laughs> no. This was beautifully Countdown done. to brush off. <laughs> I call it a classic. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's a classic. I, It has so much to talk about that I talked about it a lot. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm going to third the classic vote and a personal victory for me. Yeah. And I'm bringing this to Eric. Yeah, you finally got me. <laughs> Never bring us another X minus one worse than this. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right, Tim, tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. That's where you find other episodes of this podcast, uh, as well as information about live shows we do occasionally. Um, it's a great place to get a hold of us. If you have an episode of some title of some show you want us to listen to, we like to do that. Uh, you can leave comments on episodes. You can reach us through social media. Um, there's also just a regular leave a comment spot. Um, do that. Yeah, you can also go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast. We are actually broadcasting from space. And if you don't support this podcast, we're going to die. <laughs> so we need millions of dollars right now. That's a really good idea. <laughs> we are kind of in the cave of my basement. <laughs> <laughs> the cave of Eric's night. No, don't. Never mind. You can also write a review on iTunes. <laughs> Do that instead of thinking about what I just said. <laughs> Joke. <laughs> All right. Uh, what are we doing next? Next, we have a listener request. It is the Golem from CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Until then, look out!
Uh, Stevenson, get me some coffee, will you? Black and some kind of sandwich, no butter, no mayonnaise. Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> 